Thanks very much, Thorsten, for allowing me to speak. And as you mentioned, I spent a lot of time at the DIJ, so nice to say thanks to everybody here for not kicking me out of the building and um, for also allowing me to use photographs in that forthcoming publication that's coming next year, hopefully with Brill. I've got a chapter in the book based on um, other fronts, other wars, discussing you know lesser-known parts of the First World War, which I think, at least for European scholarship, Japan fits into that. Um, so yeah, my talk's title is Prisoners of War from Tsingtao during the First World War, a comparative perspective, uh, maybe comparative and maybe integrative perspective if I can uh, see how we get on during the course of the 30 or 40 minutes I have. Um, so recent studies on prisoners of war and civilian internees in Europe during the First World War focus on violence, mismanagement of camps, and the use of forced labor, uh, names of historians like Heather Jones, who's done a groundbreaking work dealing with uh, France, Britain, and Germany, and their use of forced labor camps. Uh, others like Ute Hins, who's written a book exclusively on uh, Kriegsgefangenschaft, uh, sorry, prisoner war camps in Germany. And also recently this year, a Japanese scholar from Kyoto, Utsuru Atsushi, has looked at forced labor of Austro-Hungarian prisoners in Russia, a book I haven't yet got around to reading, but it sounds quite fascinating. Um, so we've seen the last couple of years a, a turn away from this kind of 1990s idea of, as Richard Speed, who wrote a book in, in, the, in 1990 itself, actually discussing the liberal tradition of captivity in the First World War, where he says the First World War is kind of a leftover of 19th century kind of gentlemanly imperialism during war, where it finishes with officers giving each other handshakes after a good battle, but there's no real animosity on the other side, which I think has been very much overthrown in terms of European research. And basically, that's the simple question I started out with my own research. Well, does this hold true for the theatres of war outside Europe? Can we also turn this liberal tradition on its head and look at the First World War outside Europe as a part of total combat and kind of mo modern mechanized warfare. Um, so popular history of the war in the extra-European theatre, at least from the European and English language perspective, is covered by such comic novels as like the Ice Cream War, which deals with uh, the war in East Africa. Um, from closer to here, the Tsingtao War, maybe people would know about Gunther Pluschow, the famous aviator who escapes from Tsing Tao, is captured in China, brought to Britain, and finally escapes again, where he's free to fight the war again for Germany. These kind of ripping yarns, or, or what's so called, kind of take up most of the literature on the war outside the colonies. Um, they present the war as eccentric sideshow to the conflict in Europe, where colonialists, who were once neighbors, were forced to fight one another in response to their patriotic duty what uh, Charlotte Depp calls a, a theatre patriotismus, but with no real anim animosity on either side. Best highlighted, I think, through the final scene of the 1976 Oscar-winning film Black, White and Colour, which I'm sure everybody in this room has seen, um, where it's based on the war in, in French West Africa, where once the German troops are defeated, the com combined French-British white troops invite the German officers for tea and dancing much to the amusement of the unlooking African soldiers who did most of the fighting and dying. However, coming up to the centenary, the 100th year anniversary of the First World War, there is a much more uh, academic turn being put onto the extra-European uh, conflict. Studies now focus more on this displacement of indigenous populations, the use of carriers in East Africa being a 
the most noted example, uh, Michelle Moyd works a lot on this, looking at the, I think we can safely say about upwards from 300,000 uh, carriers maybe were forced into carrying packs and things and died during the war. Uh, also looking at the transfer of African, Indian, Chinese and Indo-Chinese soldiers and carriers to fight and work on the battlefields of Flanders and the Somme. Um, so now I think coming up to the centenary of the, of the war, the extra-European contribution to the war is now regarded as an integral part of the conflict and no longer a mere sideshow. And this gets me on to the body of what I want to talk about today. I have three basic points um, that I'd like to look at. Uh, firstly, let's look at the Great War in a global context and give an outline of the global camp network as I have kind of constructed through my research. Secondly, I'm focusing on Japan, uh, mainly looking at contemporary attitudes from the more Euro European side, so the German prisoners themselves and what's going on in Britain, France and Germany in terms of their reaction to how they perceive treatment of prisoners in Japan. Finally then, uh, I'll try to draw some contrasts and comparisons with internment in other extra-European camps. I chose today India and Australia. Um, there are among, among many examples I could have chosen, so maybe in discussion, if you have questions about other areas, we can see what we can come up with. Um, as I highlighted in the flyer for this talk, uh, the basic question I'd like to answer by the end of this uh, is to address how did prisoners from the colony of Tsingtao fare in comparison to their counterparts from the other German colonies? So how can we kind of just do a simple comparison with Tsingtao and the other uh, German colonies and the kind of global cap network. So these are the three things. Um, slide. So the war is a global conflict. Uh, this is a picture of Britain, of course, as the kind of land-grabbing octopus. It's from Swedish propaganda in 1914, uh, pro-German Swedish propaganda in 1914. I just as a nice little highlight of the global aspect of the war. Um, but get onto the more serious business of data and, and information. Uh, the fighting of the First World War for Britain and, of course, Japan starts and ends outside Europe. The first shots fired by the British Empire were by the West African Frontier Force in Togoland, and the first territory taken was by the New Zealanders when they took over the island of Samoa. And, of course, the war ends on 25th of November 1918, two weeks after it ends in Europe, with the surrender of General Paul von Leto Vorbeck in German East Africa. Um, I'll be keen to stress here that, you know, although colonial aims were not the key motivation for Britain entering the war, um, once the conflict broke out, Britain and France and other uh, colonial powers acted swiftly to take over all of Germany's overseas possessions. The outbreak in, of war in Europe was an opportunity for the Allies to take over German-held territory. Japan saw the war as a, you know, off-quoted, once-in-a-century opportunity to gain a political and uh, geographical stronghold in China. France, Britain, Belgium, Portugal all embark on a second scramble for Africa as they, go, as they fight to divide up what's left of the Ger German Empire, with um, Britain coming out the obvious winners, getting German East Africa, control of German Southwest Africa, France getting Cameroon and Belgium getting Rwanda and Burundi. Portugal gets nothing. Um, South Africa then, similarly, have this idea of a sub-imperial conquest. South Africa, India also have eyes on German territories. South Africa, through Britain, gains control of German Southwest Africa. India has plans to take over German East Africa and use it as its own colonial um, 
outlet for its growing population, something that's uh, denied to them by the British. Um, and then moving to the Pacific, Australia and New Zealand see the war as a chance to establish their own spheres of influence in the Pacific. Um, the Germans, Australia and New Zealand felt, had not been worthy of running colonies. Through bad management, they had left their possessions wide open to the expansionist ambitions of the Japanese. Um, although Japan was Australia and New Zealand's ally during the war, there was, they were viewed as suspicion. This is all after a period of you know, Yellow Pearl, White Australia policy and various other anti-Oriental, anti, anti if the word I can still use that today, I'm not sure, but anti-Japanese, anti-Chinese policies. Um, taking over Germany's colonies for Australia and New Zealand would not only pre prevent them falling to the Japanese hands, but would create a buffer zone from which to protect the mainland from any future threat by the Japanese Empire. They're already thinking about the next conflict during the first one. Finally, Britain was also keen from a military and naval viewpoint, and to a certain extent commercial as well, to eliminate German presence overseas. The immediate tactical necessity of taking over the German colonies, disable their ports, disable any wireless uh, communications they could have, um, and round up German civilians to prevent agitation amongst the local populations, fits into the more long-term strategic objective of confining Germany to Europe and to ensure British dominance and sea power will weaken Germany's position in any future conflicts. So, even before the USA and China joined the war in 1917, from its outset in 1914, the First World War is truly a global conflict. Um, here's a map I found from the Red Cross archives in Geneva. It gives a basic outline of uh, the kind of camp network. Um, up here, because Japan is not... Hold the microphone. Japan is not uh, known in not, but it's, it's in a detail. So the Chinese camps are marked out, as are likewise the camps in Europe, Britain, and it's not marked on the map. But otherwise, they're in a little detail on the map. But you can see from this map that there are camps everywhere. Wherever there are Germans, there are prison camps, basically. Um, stretching from Chile over here, right up to the Carolina Isles, of course, where there's many Germans in regions of China, up as far as even in, in Norway. Um, Reinhard Nautical estimated there are about 300,000 prisoners of war outside Europe, or prisoners of war and civilian internees, I should say, outside Europe by the end of the war. Uh, my study looks at about 25,000 prisoners who were taken from the German colonies. And I'd like to just give a quick brief rundown of what happens to the German colonies at the beginning of the war and where did the um, prisoners from these colonies go. So starting with Togoland and Cameroon, who are in uh, West Africa, Basically, these two colonies are overrun at the beginning of the war. Um, about 400 prisoners from Togoland are shipped to French, to French West Africa, along with the remains of the German population from Cameroon, who had not been taken out of the colony in 1915. Uh, German Southwest Africa is a bit more of the exception to what my study here. Um, a lot of the German civilians were allowed to remain in Southwest Africa. They weren't evacuated from the colony as in other places uh, due to South Africa's policy of keeping the Cape white. But uh, the prisoners of war that were kept there were the officers and rank and file who were kept in military camps until the end of the war. New Guinea and Samoa quite fall quite quickly. Um, there's very little of a military force there. It's mainly uh, civilian internees and they're allowed out eventually for the first, for the, essentially for the first two years they're allowed on parole. But then as more anti-German sentiment builds in Australia and New Zealand, they are shipped to prison camps in Australia and Zealand, respectively. Finally, Germany East Africa is kind of, and again, another, the war lasts longer. It lasts, as I said, it, until late 1918. 
and it's compl complicated how they deal with prisoners here. They have policies of taking prisoners from Germany, East Africa, to India, to Malta, Egypt, even in some cases they've shipped some prisoners down as far as Australia. Um, so I just kind of give this idea that the camp network is always moving. The prisoners are always being moved around by the British as they decide to build what to do with the Germans. A, they don't want them in the German colonies, that's the first point, but B, where do they send them? Initially, the policy is to send them to Germany, send them back home, they can do more, they can do less damage in Germany than they can in the colonies, was the first argument. But as the naval blockade builds up, and especially after the sinking of the Lusitania in May 1915, there's a lot more anti-German uh, sentiment in Britain and people don't want to have these Germans being treated nicely by sending them home, they need to be interned, and also the fact that it's difficult to ship them around to Europe, so the, the final policy is to send everyone to Australia, which of course follows on with um, British historiography very well. Uh, but for example, prisoners from India, where plans were enacted to send them to Australia, the war ends before these are enacted, but the whole end goal of this prison network is to basically send everyone to Australia by 1918. Um, so yeah, sorry, here's some, the uh, German colonies all fought in the war. All Germans, okay. uh, yes, then looking at what's kind of controlling treatment of prisoners of war, what are they kind of outside or inside controls? First thing you look at, and the most important thing I think, is the threat of reprisals. Uh, how prisoners were treated in Europe had a direct effect on how prisoners in the colonies were treated and vice versa. Um, the, most the biggest example I can think of is from French West Africa, from the camp in Dahomey, where the Germans uh, get uh, were to the Red Cross about ill treatment of German prisoners, where they, they hear reports of prisoners being whipped with oxide whips, having thumbscrews applied, and various other kind of medieval tortures. In, in retaliation, the Germans decide to ship 400 German, uh, French, sorry, intellectual civilians to the Rhineland marshes for forced labor, and promise to keep them there until the France promises to release the prisoners from West Africa, which the French actually give in and eventually close down the camps in West Africa and send the prisoners to France, where they're eventually sent to Switzerland for neutral internment. Um, reprisals affect how prisoners are treated in Europe and in the colonies. And it, it links these two, these two theatres together very much. Uh, prestige, and the, more importantly, the neutral opinion, especially until 1917, before the USA joins the war, is a very important aspect for how prisoners are treated, especially in terms of the British Empire. Um, there's a large neutral opinion to be taken care of. Um, Pro-German sentiment in America is quite strong. Any, any kind of reports of British ill-treatment of German prisoners is not going to look too good for Britain. And also the fact that one of the reasons for joining the war in the first place is based on the fact that the Germans are barbarians. They, you know, they raced through Belgium. Um, they broke the, sorry, I'm they um, broke Belgian neutrality, so they're basically breaking international law, and the British have to basically maintain through a camp system as well that they're obeying international law, especially as laid down by The Hague. Uh, also, coupled to this uh, prestige, and I know it sounds a bit ridiculous to talk about it now, but the risk of uh, indigenous uprising, um, fear of colonial revolutions, is very much linked to how British treat their prisoners. Um, Ill-treatment of prisoners in front of the, the indigenous population is seen by the British Foreign Office and the Colonial Office as having a negative effect on how they're going to control the colonies after the war. 
also there's a uh, constant fear and it's linked through things like the Boer, up, there's a Boer, in South Africa there's a Boer kind of uprising against the war in 1914, in Ireland 1916 there's an Easter Rising, a rebelling against British control, and these are seen from the British Foreign Office, Colonial Office, as being German instigated. Um, also, the global German-sponsored jihad, to use a more contemporary term, is going on also at this time. The British fear that Germany is causing unrest through agitation, and the sooner they can take these prisoners out of the colonies and put them somewhere safe, i.e. Australia, the better. Right, so that's kind of just an overview, uh, as brief as possible, I hope, of, of uh, the kind of global camp network, how it links together. What I'd like to talk about next then is, well, how does Sing Tao and how the German prisoners in Japan fit in, or do they even fit in? Um, this picture, again, I found from the uh, Red Cross archives in Geneva of a prison camp. It just says the caption was a prison camp in Japan. It doesn't tell me where, um, but I think any of you who are familiar with looking at pictures of prison camps in Japan from the, at least the DIJ archive will see a very stunning kind of contrast. It's just a couple of makeshift tents as compared to like the solid uh, military barracks of Bando. Um, and I'm sure I don't need to get into a great amount of detail here about the whole Sing Tao, the siege of Sing Tao, as I assume, I assume it's a story that most of you will be familiar with. Uh, but I just to kind of, to bore you a little bit, I'll go on with a very basic talk about the siege of Sing Tao. Uh, Japan's involvement in the First World War begins at the siege of Sing Tao. Germany takes the colony in 1897. Uh, this is probably quite galling to Japan who had been denied the spoils of the war, war in the Sino-Japanese War uh, based on Germany and France and Russia intervening. Similarly then, riots had broken out in Tokyo in response to, um, again, Japan's feeling that they had been denied the spoils of a successful war after defeating Russia and signing the Treaty of Portsmouth in 1905. Japan then enters the First World War in August 1914, determined not to be denied its just rewards for a third time. Uh, Foreign Minister Foreign Minister Kato Takagi uh, basically brings Japan into the war, and it's you know the once-in-a-century opportunity for Japan to gain control in China while the, while the allies or the rest of the, their allies are busy in Europe. The outcome of the siege of Tsingtao, of course, was a foregone conclusion. Combined Japanese with a token British force under Japanese command, vastly outnumbered the opposition. It was only a matter of time before the Germans would surrender. On 14th of November 1914, they eventually did and about 4,800 German prisoners of war are brought back to Japan for internment. Notably, no German civilians were interned after this siege, uh, not in Tsingtao or nor in Japan itself. Um, and of course, once they get to Germany, we get the building of the historiography of Bando and the Alimension Verdenbruder and this kind of culture exchange of prisoners, in, prisoners with the local population. Um, so similar with the UK, I think the, the round of the German and uh, German and Austro-Hungarian prisoners, but for brevity, I'm just going to say German for the rest of the talk. Um, I hope it doesn't offend any Austro-Hungarian friends here. Uh, German prisoners, um, of course, their treatment was makeshift at the beginning, but however, Japan had conducted itself well in its treatment of prisoners of war during the Russo-Japanese War and continued along the same lines, although German officers were not offered parole as Russian officers were, i.e. if they give their, their, their good word, they were allowed to return home and, and that was it. But in the First World War, no parole was offered to German officers. But unlike the Russians, they did receive salaries and allowances comparable to their rank. Um, let's go back to the next slide. Um, and then the Entente, so France, Britain, view prisoners of war in Japan as being too well treated. Uh, 
I think this sums up, summed up very well by a headline from a Japan Times article that says, apart from German beer, they suffer no privation. Uh, German prisoners are seen as being treated very well. A contemporary consensus on the treatment of, of prisoners in Japan follows along with this kind of myth of the good treatment of prisoners. The French War Ministry in 1916, writing to the British, noted very sarcastically in a letter that uh, the, Jap the Germans in Japan were enjoying a certain level of freedom. Um, foreign media based in Yokohama, like the, the uh, apart from German beer headline, makes many references to lenient treatment of German and Austro-German prisoners and civilians. Um, in fact, they say you know that they complain that the Germans aren't being made to to work, where they're just being allowed to kind of you know spend their free time doing as what they will. Uh, the post-war myth of comfortable internment then actually already exists among the Allied powers during the war and was a contributing factor to tensions between the British and the Japanese. Interestingly, going through the, so in Germany, the archives I've been looking at the last couple of years, looking at press reports on various prison camps around the world, they're very negative, for example, press reports about uh, prison camps in Cameroon carry all this kind of colonial imagery of barbaric black guards treating German prisoners very badly, various different outrages and, you know, imagined kind of colonial violence is applied to a lot of these articles. When it comes to articles dealing with Japan, there's very little. Uh, there's very little full stop. What is there basically has nothing too negative to say apart from why won't the Japanese send their boys home. That's about the extent of anti-German propaganda, anti-Japanese propaganda we get in the German press during the war. Um, and this repatriation becomes an issue for the British, uh, especially early in the war when Germany is on the front foot and Britain is on the back foot. Germany has more prisoners than the British until about 1916, then the balance starts to swing. But up until then, 4,800 prisoners in Japan is quite a large number. Britain asks Japan if they would consider using them in exchange for British prisoners. Japan refuses, and that's the end of that. Uh, Britain is not very happy, but this also keeps German prisoners in Japan outside this kind of link. They're not linked into global internment the way that other prisoners are. There's no kind of, they don't get moved around. They, there's no possibility of repatriation. So for example, even though repatriations are very few in between, exchanges, I mean, are very few in between, I should say. Repatriations happen in Japan for sick and wounded prisoners, but uh, exchanges are very few and far between. Um, although from the colonies, for example, there's always the hope that one could be exchanged, where in Japan there's, there's no really hope of going home until the war is all over. Um, furthermore, I think something to, to with the population in Japan was not very fully anti-German as it was, for example, in Australia. Uh, there's not an animosity between uh, the local population and the prisoners. Uh, ordinary Japanese soldiers, they of course they fought in Tsingtao, but they didn't really care if they were fighting Germans, they were fighting Europeans. Better if they'd be Russian, but they were, they were Germans this time around. Um, officers, of course, had a more a close bond to, to German prisoners. Uh, most of the Japanese officer corps had done, had been trained in the German military methods. Most of the, some of the camp commanders, for example, had lived in Germany before the war and knew some of their colleagues or some of their inmates quite well. Um, and Japan, again, as I kind of mentioned, the, the prestige thing, they were keen to, you know, be perceived as the civilized great power, and they followed the letter the letter of the law of The Hague pretty much very well in control in, in prisoner controlling, prisoner treatment, sorry. And again, there are no civilian internees in Japan. This also leads the German population living in Japan 
It gives the prisoners a wide support network of German businesses, their wives, their families. Some of them from Tsingtao actually moved to Japan during the war to be near their husbands. It offers a kind of a more of a deeper connection. For example, in India, where if you're a German civilian, you're separated from your husband and put into separate camps, often covering great distances away. And then with reprisals come in the cutting of mail, and you can no longer contact these people, which becomes quite traumatic. But in Japan, you have this idea that yeah, there is a kind of a support network in the, in, the, in the country itself for these prisoners, which makes a great deal of difference when you think about it. Um, the internees themselves then, uh, they obviously would disagree on this whole idea of them being treated very well, uh, very rightly so. Um, although in the post-war memoirs, you do get a lot of more positive as, uh, kind of accounts, like Johannes Barth talking about his time in, in prison camps. He remem remembers it quite fondly. Um, however, contemporary accounts then looking at reports in the Red Cross and from the US Embassy, they find especially the officers here, which is one thing I need to stress that there's not a lot of written from the rank and file, which I'm sure if they were to write their memoirs, they'd probably write something much different. But the officers even do have complaints. Uh, Major Clayman at Matsuya camp in 1915, November 1915, registers his complaints with the US Embassy with the express intention of opposing the widespread opinion that prisoners of war are especially well cared for in Japan. Clayman's complaints hardly back up this claim. Uh, the main problems he could find was that he, as an officer, had to share living quarters. Um, awful indignity on a German officer. Japanese guards, however, were not treating German officers with the respect warranting their rank. And this, I think, comes into the prestige and the kind of role reversal of German officers being placed into prison camps. Um, and that kind of brings in the kind of the ennui and the anger from the German officers. Uh, Kurume camp in Kyushu is one camp that's kind of coming more under scrutiny now as we kind of move away from the idea of Bando. People often cite Kurume as kind of the the opposite of the anti-Bando, the opposite of Bando, basically. Um, when you look at the reports, yeah, they're, they're quite negative. They talk about how cramped the camp is, um, how the, the latrines, for example, aren't very well maintained, and these things. But mainly, again, the problems with the camp rely with the relationship between prisoners and guards. Uh, a key event here is um, on the coronation of the Emperor Taisho, the camp commander decides to make an offering, uh, a a present of some apples and beer to the German officers who refuse on patriotic grounds and the fact that Japan and Germany are at war. The camp commander then con proceeds to beat the officers, striking them, kicking them while they're on the ground. Um, and this obviously is a great indignity for German officers. Uh, Austro-Hungarian Albert Freiherr von Kuhn, in his memoirs, actually writing in 1931, he's one of the few post-war negative memoirs, uh, again writing to dispel the myth that uh, he said, a myth that was created by those whose only knowledge about Japan came from reading Lafcadio or Hearn or Pierre Lotti and imagined that prisoners in Japan were, transfer were living kind of in, you know, paper houses surrounded by geishas, this kind of idea. He felt that the Japanese were treating them more like children than men. Um, his own opinions, von Kuhn, of course, was coloured by his reading of Bushido. He's very into this idea. Uh, as the German and Austro-Hungarians the officers had given themselves up unwounded, von Kuhn felt that they had lost the respect of Japanese soldiers and were merely to be treated, as he says, as cattle. Although again very bitter at his treatment, the only major complaints he could make were in relation to the way the Japanese punished escape attempts, which was in its own way kind of quite draconian. Uh, von Kuhn finally in his final remarks that Japan was a very comfortable place to live, the only problem was it was inhabited by the Japanese. Um, so 
more so than in continental Europe, I think, well, we can talk about Russia, maybe is it, is it part of continental Europe, but race is an important factor in how these prisoners perceive themselves in internment. Uh, Father Pavarincini, in his uh, Red Cross report on, on, on Japan, noted that the German officers especially, uh, especially those who had spent long periods of time in Tsingtao, were used to treating the Chinese as colonial serfs or even worse. It came as a shock to them and perhaps an indignity to have to suffer internment under an Asian power. Unlike their Chinese porters, the Japanese prison, prison guards were not to be bossed around. Um, and from these examples, then, what I try to highlight is I think the myth of good internment stands up. I'm sorry to kind of, you know, to begin the flyer, I wasn't going to break down the myth completely, but um, I think what needs to be emphasized that's not really spoken about in the lit literature so much is that the Germans were not as eager participants in this myth as has been made out from a lot of the literature or even the, you know, the, the movie Baritone no Gakuen, which presents everyone very happily singing along to Beethoven. Um, and this ties them into the kind of this racial role reversal is something I deal a lot more in my work, but it becomes a lot more stronger when, you deal, when you're dealing with, of course, prisoners who are interned in India or who are interned in East Africa, when, of course, racial ideas are a lot more uh, developed than they are against the, the Japanese, I think. Um, so what I'd like to move on now is get on to internment worldwide and try to offer some comparisons if I can. Uh, first picture meant to obviously shock everybody is uh, actually a picture postcard from New Guinea. Germans are flogged at Rabaul for beating a priest they thought was a spy. I don't know if you can make it up here, but there's a German prisoner bent over this um, uh, luggage case here and he was received about 20 lashes with a whip for um, beating a German, uh, British missionary before the Australians took over the colony, who they, who they accused of being a spy. Six uh, German prisoners were taken out and beaten in public as a way to kind of show a discipline, the unruly Germans, and take over the colony. As I mentioned, um, back to this map, was global internment. I'm going to look at India and Australia. Just, you know, we can, I'll go back in this map in a bit later. But more information. So as I said at the beginning, uh, the article says about 300,000 prisoners of war and civilians are interned worldwide. I'm going to look now at India and um, Australia. So the camps run by British and Dominion governments covered a huge area from the map. Uh, wherever there were Germans, there were camps. And prison camps were just not just established for colonial troops, but like, like the Boer War previously, all enemy civilians were registered and rounded up for internment. It was a monumental task of administration and engineering that dwarfed in scale that of the concentration camp system established in 1899-1902 in South Africa. Um, prisoner war camps were set up uh, in areas as remote as Bermuda, where there were 39 Germans, uh, or even in Borneo, which housed only five. Um, Australia and, and India, then, I looked at, Australia has probably the greatest amount of prison camps of anywhere outside Europe. Uh, the largest camp is Liverpool in Sydney, which had a prisoner population of about 4,500. When you think about Bando, has about a prison camp population of about 1,000, a little over, just to give a kind of scale. At Mednagar in India, which is one camp that I'm going to focus on, was mainly taken for prisoners of war from German East Africa, but also housed uh, German civilians, had a population of about 1,700, and there were numerous other camps dotted around India, um, mainly for Ottoman soldiers as well, which is something that I was discussing. If somebody would like to do some research on the Ottoman aspect, I'd be very happy. Um, so I'll try to make some comparisons. Uh, of course, you know, weaknesses in comparisons can point out the Japanese case, the 
prisoners of war were held in Japan itself in the colonial metropole, um, where I'm looking at prisoners here on the kind of periphery of the British Empire. Um, but as I tried to stress through this idea of reprisals, prestige, and these things, Britain needed centralised control over, the, over prison, prisoner management. Okay, they, the guards and all were locally hired, but the rules, regulations were all controlled from London. Um, this becomes very important as the, as the war goes on, I think. Um, in India, then, I'll start off. Uh, fear of German colonial-led rebellion. Singapore mutiny in 1915. Um, I don't know if anybody knows much about this incident, but basically Indian troops, mainly Muslim troops, uh, rebelled in, in, in Singapore on the news that they were to be sent to the Western Front or possibly to the Mesopotamian Front to fight against their uh, Muslim brothers, as they said. But at the time, the British Foreign Office, Colonial Office, pinned the blame for the mutiny on German prisoners. They presumed that the German prisoners had put the Indian troops up to the mutiny. They had been agitating them. And this, they, they felt, was proven by the fact that the mutineers, the first place they went to attack was the prison camp to liberate the German prisoners. Um, whereas in reality, when the mutineers did attack the camp, all the Germans hid behind the British soldiers and asked them to shoot at the mutineers and get them away from themselves. But two or three Germans managed to escape, but there was nothing really involved in the instigation. They weren't really instigating this, this mutiny. But nevertheless, at the time, this builds into British paranoia about Br German prisoners abroad, German prisoners in the colonies and their impact. Um, so for example, in Abednagar, you do have inmates similar to Japan. They're encouraged to use their free time to study, to do, play sports, and these kind of things, these kind of you know, recreational activities. However, unlike Japan, cultural interactions are kept to a minimum, basically almost to a zero. There's a total ban, for example, in camps in India on the study of any non-European languages. So for example, in Japan, most of the prisoners spent their time learning Japanese or learning Chinese. In India, there's a, a total ban on learning any Urdu or any local languages. You can have a textbook in English or in French, and that's about as far as they'll let you go. Um, and there would be no cultural embrace in India. That was, and this was also reciprocated by the German prisoners of war themselves. Um, as in Bando, the prisoners held exhibitions. But in India, the exhibitions were really for prisoners themselves. They wouldn't open up to the local population. Um, and prisoners complained bitterly to the Red Cross on the presence of Indian guards, Indian tradesmen, and Indian doctors in the camps. Also, but dissimilar to Japan, uh, Ahmed Nagar gets involved in the reprisals. Um, this is obviously because it's linked into the kind of European war. Um, from basically 1915, 1916 on, mail is very limited, if restricted to almost zero in the camp due to what Britain sees as the unjust treatment of British and Belgian civilians in Germany. And they use prisoners from the colonies in reprisal. Uh, so any prisoners from Germany, East Africa, which includes our prisoners in India, also in Malta, Egypt, have all their uh, postal postals, um, the states, uh, their post is restricted. They're not, they're not allowed to send letters anymore, basically. Then this kind of cuts them off already from their families who are in separate camps across the continent or in Germany or, or wherever they may be. And this co cuts off a vital kind of, you know, lifeline for these prisoners. It, it cuts out any kind of support packages they can get and also supports any kind of, cuts out any emotional support they can get. Um, as I said, plans to ship all the prisoners to Australia from India were enacted during the war uh, due to this fear of uh, the Germans causing native uprising and also due to German complaints about the conditions in India. 
India was never going to be European enough for the Germans. There was always going to be a threat of reprisals against British prisoners as long as there are German prisoners in India. So better to send them to Australia, which has a pretty much good, strong white population. Um, it's got more or less comparable conditions to Europe. Um, they initially looked at sending to South Africa. The South Africans refused, but the Australians are already all too ready to accept more prisoners in. And this will bring me on to Australia. Um, I showed you that uh, picture postcard of the flogging in New Guinea. The conditions in Australia are a bit rougher than they are elsewhere, to say the least. Um, public punishment of prisoners does happen quite a bit in Australia, uh, not just in New Guinea, but in the mainland itself, uh, Torrens Island. A couple of prisoners are also flogged. Um, but these things are against the norm. This is not what the British want in their, in their administration camps. And they, once they launch investigations, they come down quite heavily on the camp commanders responsible. Uh, for example, in Torrens Island, the camp commander, Captain G. Hawkes, who was, uh, according to the uh, inquiry, was, was a drunkard. Um, he basically said he had free power to use the bayonet and the rifle as he wished. Uh, so along with flogging prisoners, um, the camp doctor, Dr. Meyer, claimed he'd inspected men who bore the scars of bayonet wounds, and the guards themselves had mentioned they were under orders to use bayonets on the prisoners. Um, also, one or two prisoners had been shot. Uh, the findings of, of the inquiry at Torrance were quite bad, and the British come down on this quite strong to basically bring back into kind of more centralized control. But while these things are happening, there is kind of a lot of this, uh, the local administration is not really kind of following what Britain wants. Um, Again, Australia, there's more cases of mock executions. Prisoners are forced to crawl through six wire, six wire fences and things like the other kind of various humiliating punishments. This builds up through a lot of anti-German feeling in Australia. As the war continues on, as I mentioned with the sinking to Lusitania, also once Australian troops start getting killed in Gallipoli and on the Western Front, there's a lot more anti-German agitation in Australia. There's calls from the local press to intern every German civilian the, wet, the net of who gets interned in Australia widens. And you see a similar process happening in New Zealand and also in South Africa, which South Africa being the surprising example, which was quite, had a quite large pro-German uh, minority at the beginning of the war. By the end of the war, they've all switched around and they're completely rapidly anti-German and want everyone rounded up and put in the prison camp. Um, so as Australia being the end destination for um, prison camps, I kind of go into that as the as the war ends then, post-war legislation, which doesn't happen in Japan as well, is brought in to prevent the Germans returning. As Heather Jones argued in the case of German prisoners in France, the image of the German prisoner remained an inherently dangerous figure, a potential perpetrator of violence. In a different context then, prisoners from the colonies were seen as an inherent destabilizing factor in the re-establishment of British trade overseas. Uh, the war cabinet says in a, in a meeting on uh, in just after 11th of November 1918, that to allow Germans to return to the colonies would have a disastrous effect on the native mind, and the return of the Germans, who, uh, sorry, the return of Germans would have a disastrous effect on the native mind, uh, on, the, on seeing the German come back who, they has, who he has seen ignominiously removed. So seeing these Germans come back from being removed, they fear would also cause this disability. Um, Australia in turn brings in legislation to restrict the, restrict the admission of aliens after the war, the Aliens Committee is set up to decide that Germans are no longer white, they're enemy aliens, they, could not, they, they didn't belong to the, you know, the white Australia policy anymore. Um, and it was not until 1931 that this uh, German prejudice starts to abate, 
when they realize that to make up for the shortfall of German Austro-Hungarian immigration, they have to hire to um, import a lot more Chinese labor, they start to t change their views and the Germans become kind of white again, come full circle. Um, so to get to the conclusion, the historiography of internment in the First World War has radically changed in the last decade. Uh, this commonly held image of gentlemanly warfare has been challenged a lot, as I said at the beginning. The British Empire was mobilized for total warfare, whereas in Japan, the Siege of Tsingtao, some other actions such as the Siberian intervention, were dealt with by the army and navy, but did not require the massive manpower efforts with its accompanying anti-German propaganda that was present in Britain and elsewhere. The Japanese population never became very anti-German. There were no national calls to intern every enemy alien. And the Japanese only reluctantly closed down German businesses in like 1916, 1917. And likewise, after the war, a lot of Germans returned either to Tsingtao or to Japan to set up businesses again where they could not do in other areas. Um, so I asked a question at the beginning, and I guess it would be rude not to answer it. So how do prisoners from the colony of Tsingtao fare in comparison to their counterparts from the other German colonies? Well, quite well would be the simple answer. Um, while certainly there was anti-German anti sentiment in Japan, it lessened as the war went on rather than heightened as in cases such as South Africa. There was no fear of infection, i.e. Germans spreading uh, revolutionary fervor in Japan, unlike in India. Um, civilians were never interned in Japan or in Tsingtao. Um, even after internment, then, of course, Japanese or German citizens get to go back to Japan, get to set up businesses back, back to, back to um, Tsingtao as well. In terms of violence, there are you know, a lot of incidents of you know, punch-ups between guards and, and uh, prisoners, but nothing compared to what's happening in, say, Australia, for example, or in other parts of the world, I would think. Um, reprisals are never acted, enacted in Japan. The network... The, the Japanese prison camp network itself doesn't belong to the global prison camp network. Um, so that's about it. I think uh, while those interned in the uh, Japanese camps may not have agreed, I would say that the Japanese prison camp system, while certainly not perfect, internment in Japan during the First World War remains kind of unique in the 20th century for the good treatment allowed to its enemies. And I'll finish up there. Thank you very much. Too long. Okay. Thank you very much.